Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On The Money here on News Talk 1493.9 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On The Money, with your host, Paul Rudy. Well, welcome everybody. This is Paul Rudy coming at you from the sunny shores of Lake Millac in northern Minnesota. Well, I'm going to spend another day or two before I head back to town, but welcome to the show. Uh, Since I'm up here, I can't see if Dr. Fred Gertz is in there. I'm here in person. We haven't been together for Uh, quite a while now. (laughs) between, Between one of us. Um, so welcome, Fred. Glad to have you back. And of course, I have certified financial planner professionals, David Rudy and Ryan Repko, who worked for me at Rudy Wealth. Well, not for me, but they worked with me at Rudy Wealth Management. You know, subtle distinctions when it's family matter at Rudy Wealth Management. You could call in at 217-356-9397 or call, text the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 217-351-5357. We have to remember past performance is no guarantee of future results. We're going to talk a lot about a, about a lot of things today, and I would suggest, as I think all my guys would, that you talk to your own advisor before you hear anybody on the radio and go do something. So welcome, guys. Uh, I don't know what it's like there, but uh, probably one of the better days of summer up here. It's going to be 80 degrees, calm, and I can be all the way across the lake, which is about 15 miles. So I don't know how it is there. We have uh, certainly nice blue skies. I think this is like what you call like your best summer fall day. Dave and I were just talking about, yeah. about that on the way in, actually. Yeah, we're missing the lake, though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I guess Ryan yeah. and I are officially old people because we're now talking to each other about the weather. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Soon it will be health care and <laughs> I remember the time about, well, I don't know, five or six years ago, uh, I have four brothers, and I think four of us, headed down to St. Louis to visit a nephew, Chris Rudy, for a Mardi Gras celebration. And I noticed about 60 miles into the ride down towards St. Louis, we had covered health care, aches and pains, good restaurants. <laughs> I realized that day I realized I was getting old. Or maybe I wasn't officially old. Well, it's been an interesting year so far. The past month, I think, has given everybody a little ray of sunshine. Speaking of sunshine, that's quite a quite a rebound off those late June lows. But when, you know, when I look at the first half of 2022 and, you know, there's a lot of talk and things written about the 60%, 40, you know, stock, 40% bond portfolio, they call it the 60, 40 portfolio. And it's, I tell you what, you have to go back a long way to find a six month period or the first half of the year that was anything like this one uh, through the end of June. Again, I'm using the S&P 500 as a proxy for the stock market, five-year treasury notes um, for my proxy for bonds. It was down almost 20% uh, in the first half of the year. Now, you basically, uh, we haven't seen a plus 20% or a minus 10% year for the 60-40 stock portfolio for a long time, probably back to the 70s. Uh, I think if I went and looked at 2008, 2009, but even that, I'm talking about the first half of a year, so I guess that would hold. Um, but on a real inflation-adjusted basis, the six-month return, the first six months of the year, was down about 28.5%. You have to go back to the 1930s, May of 32. Um, you know, so, yeah. Um, Let me take that back. The worst period for the first half of the year was minus 28.56. Through the end of June for a 60-40 portfolio this year, first half is down almost 20. So, again, it's the worst since the 30s. So it's one of the worst periods for a 60-40 portfolio uh, in a couple of centuries, and that should get people's attention. And most of that has to do, I think, guys, with the fact that bond prices have really suffered. Now, they've rebounded somewhat. Um, you know, since the first half of the year. But when I go back and look at the for five-year Treasury notes, the worst six-month period was almost minus 14%. So it was minus 13.9%. That was back in February of 1980. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, of course, 
1946, you could find another minus almost 13%. At the end of June this year, five-year Treasury notes, total return was minus 12%. So this is some pretty historic stuff that we've gone through. Uh, and But the good news is when you go back and look at the data, post like the second halves of those years, when you look at all of them, 90% of them have pretty strong returns. Uh, 90% of them were positive the, the following six months, the first bad first half. And I think the average uh, return over that period was around 10%. So doesn't mean the second half has to get a lot better than the first half, but certainly has a lot of historic history on its side. And it makes sense. Things get to equilibrium. Things get pushed too far. And it's kind of, we look back and we'll probably say, wow, that was a really bad period for the average 60-40 portfolio investor. Um, and yet, when I talk to you guys, uh, Ryan and David and, and Daniel, there's very little disruption when it comes to clients' financial plans. Um, and I don't think you, you know, you young advisors, Dave and, and Ryan, <clears throat> probably have realized that you've been through one of the worst periods in history. And for young advisors, that's, that's a pretty momentous occasion. You'll look back and you'll remember this one, I think. But again, the good news is, and, and you guys can correct me if things, if I'm getting it wrong, but you, you know, you may have two or three clients that had modest changes for a little while in spending, even through all that historical low returns for a 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, certainly for me it is. I mean, I, I didn't realize that, you know, giving these numbers prior to this show today, that they were as, you know, negatively uh, impacted as they were, like you said, Paul, largely because the bonds were down at the same time as the stock portion was down. Um, so when I looked at this market, I said, well, you know, pretty, what I was telling clients in, in true terms was pretty mild, you know, not a big event, market decline. But I was really only th right. thinking about that in terms of the equity or stock side of things. When you add to right. the equation, the fact that the bonds, which are normally supposed to be the the, the calmer waters, the, the smaller adjustments up or down in the portfolio, we're also seeing similar type declines in, you know, plus 10%, you know, 14%, depending right. on what you're in. It adds up. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, I, I think from the client side of things, clients have been fairly calm and quiet from our from our client base. Um, and I think my messaging may be um, quite calm as well, um, but I was not aware until the the notes that this was like one of the worst times since the 30s for this particular portfolio, which you know is just one portfolio. But it's an interesting observation to say the least. I have, yeah, I got when the, I looked at. Go ahead, Dave. Oh, I was going to say I got the comment from one client, and not that he was been out of shape or worried, but it was just kind of like. You know, I thought that bonds were supposed to go up during, you know, significant stock market declines. And I think that is something that people often think automatically happens because it, it often happens. And that's kind of what I said as well. Oftentimes when we get a severe market decline, one of the things that will happen is interest rates will be cut and that will cause bond prices to increase. And that's what happened in March of 2020. I was like, that's not a guarantee that that will happen. And this is a perfect example of how it's not guaranteed. I mean, you can have a period where interest rates rise at the same time the stock market is falling. And then the question was, well, then are they really a good diversifier? And I, I'd be interested to hear your take on this. But my thought was, well, let's think about this. It's like in this particular instance, intermediate term bonds were down not quite as much as the stock market, but I mean, still, like, oh. the stock market was down, what, 23, 24%, I think, at its worst low moment. Right. And if you look at intermediate term bonds, what'd you say they were down 15% or something at their. Well, five year notes were down, uh, you know, 13%. Yeah, so. That's a, that's pretty low maturity, pretty short maturity. That's a pretty significant. So there were some bonds. Yeah, there were bonds that were down 20%. Yeah, exactly. And so. But I said, think of it this way, is this was, in terms of a stock market decline, a relatively, as Ryan said, a relatively mild stock market decline. You know, 20%, 23% is, it's barely above the threshold for a bear market. The average one's about 30%. So I'm not trying to be dismissive, but it's in the grand scheme of things, it's not like an extreme one, like a 2008. 
versus this bond bear market or these bond declines. This is the worst one that we've had since like the 40s, I think you you mentioned. This right. is an extreme bond market decline, and we had a 15% or so if we're just going on the kind of like extreme end. Right. Maybe 15% decline for like a total bond market index or something like that. Right. 13, 15%. So if you compare the extreme bond market decline of 13 or 15% and the extreme stock market decline of, what was it, almost 60% in 2008 oh, and then yeah, 85 in 1929, yeah. you can see it's still a, a totally different animal. Yeah. And it's still yeah. much more stable. And, and you throw in the extra 8 or 10% inflation loss. So it, mm-hmm. Accentuation. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's a great point. In real returns, things were even kind of <clears throat> uglier. Um, well, that, that, and I'm and I'm quoting I'm quoting real returns, like okay. for the, the worst twelve year twelve month period. So rolling twelve months goes back to nineteen eighty, down fifteen point nine six percent. So that's that's at net of inflation. And again, at the end of June, on a twelve month basis, we had the five year Treasury notes down almost exactly the same amount. So I mean, this is. It's pretty historic stuff. Yeah. Well, we had 40 years of uh, low inflation and declining uh, interest rates and increasing bond prices, so maybe that's the price that has to be paid. So like you were talking about, you'd have to be in your 60s to remember uh, a, a double-digit inflation kind of uh, regime, which we've had the last few months. Well, you know, you're right, and I think, Fred, this gets back to what's the difference. Okay, between that idea that hey, bonds are good diversifier because usually when there's a crisis in the you know in the economy or somewhere, uh, you know the Fed's quick to put in liquidity and drive interest rates down. But Fred, you've said for some time that this isn't that deal. This is more of your your standard issue uh, sort of inflationary uh, trade off between trying to not kill the economy. Right. Uh, isn't that essentially the difference, Fred? Yeah, and, and the question is, uh, where do you hide? Uh, the 60 40 is uh, kind of standard, but mo- most uh, strategies have pretty high correlation with that. So the question is, sure. uh, where do you hide when you have 10% inflation? And cash is a little bit better, but not, not great. So it's a difficult yeah, situation. And, and these are the times even, where, where people come out of the woodwork saying, oh, the 60 40 portfolio is dead. I, f- I feel like yeah. that happens from time to time, and it just seems like we always have those articles written at particularly bad times for like a 60-40 yeah. portfolio. But then you look at <laughs> the following 10 years, and you look at some of these things that people said you should have done as an alternative to a 60-40 portfolio, yeah. and it, it has, historically has not worked out <laughs> particularly yeah. well. Most pension funds report on a fiscal year basis, which is June 30th, and almost all of them have – uh, not not the t- ten or twenty percent return uh, negative returns, but certainly significantly leg- uh, negative over that twelve month period. So th- th- most of them are not using sixty forty, but they use something else. Uh, there's also the, the dodge. Uh, when, when things are good, they they report absolute returns. When things are bad, they they look at the benchmark, and and they're all <laughs> handling their benchmark. Yeah. All right. Does that work? Do people feel better knowing that, hey, I'm down 23%, but the benchmark's down 24 Right. I feel like that's kind of, that doesn't really provide a lot of comfort to people. Yeah. Well, we do have now, Fred, we have the Inflation Redux- Reduction Act. And, yeah. uh, boy, I get suspicious when they, when they use those kinds of names because yeah. uh, I found that whenever politicians uh, pass laws that impact the economy, the results, and uh, with few exceptions, end up being not only perverse, but the kind of the opposite of the aim of the legislation. Yeah, I think it, obviously it's just an aim, and I don't think anyone, uh, Republican or Democrat, in terms of the uh, outside kind of analyst, uh, think it's going to have any, any near-term impact on inflation. Uh, the only good thing about it is it, it could have been two or three times larger, and because of the negotiations and so on, it was whittled down to uh, a smaller size. So, I don't, And again, I don't think it's damaging, but it's certainly not a reset. Re, uh, an Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Do you think it reduces some of the incentive for businesses to invest? Because there are some corporate tax increases. Uh, sure. Uh, th- those are uh, probably uh, can be important. The, the, uh, the idea of book value is kind of a controversial one. I don't think there's much to say for it in terms of the 
idea of tax policy, but it's the idea that they want every <clears throat> all corporations to pay. And the, the theory is they're using various kinds of avoidance techniques. This is a way of trying to deal with that. We used to have a the alternative minimum tax, which the goal was the same thing. So again, I think it's not a policy thing, but I don't think it's a, a huge negative either. Uh, what about um, kind of the impact on workers? You know, because it does expand the Affordable Health Care Act. And those subsidies, kind of unlike unemployment, they're not really tied to you have to go out really and be actively searching for a job. <laughs> it's right. pretty, uh, pretty generous. Uh, and I got to admit, I have clients that, oddly enough, they're millionaires that are getting much of their, if they're prior to age 65, getting much of their health care paid for because right. of the generous subsidies and the way you can kind of skew your income. Yeah, it used to be that uh, a lot of redistribution was targeted to uh, really poor people, but now it's uh, two or three or four times the poverty level. And with a number of children, there are all kinds of subsidy programs that someone can make $100,000 and still be subsidized. And again, I think that's just part of the, uh, the health care changes that we're, we're going through. So again, uh, I don't think it's a huge negative, although in the long term, every little bit counts, I think. And it's probably not a step in the, yeah, in the think, right direction. I, I think I think that keeps... You know, I think that used to keep a lot of people working that now can choose not to work because, you know, healthcare has always been one of the big concerns people had if they retired prior to Medicare age of 65. You know, you mentioned taxes, and I read an article by Scott Granis titled Tax Revenues, Revenues Are on the Moon, Why Double the IRS? Again, by scottgranis.blogspot.com. He wrote, since just before the onset of the COVID-19 crisis, Federal revenues on a rolling 12-month basis has, have increased 36% with the lion's share coming from surging individual income tax payments. Federal revenues now stand at 19.4% of GDP, which is way above the average of 17.4% since 1968. He wrote, I thought this was fascinating, the federal budget deficit would be in surplus today if not for the continued and, uh, and continued spending on the part of Congress. Um, yet, despite these facts, the Democrats, well, I don't want to get political, but this is him saying it, want to increase taxes on corporations, double the number of employees at the IRS, and increase spending by $760 billion, uh, which says this will become a headwind to growth. And, other, and it's kind of summary is revenues increased from a monthly average of $296 billion to $402 billion. And over that same, and it was about a five-year period he was referring to, over the same period on a rolling 12-month basis, Individual, so just kind of like every moving a month and looking at the past 12 months, individual income taxes have increased by a staggering 48%, rising from $1.76 trillion to now $2.6 trillion, and yet Washington wants more. I really wasn't, I haven't been tracking those numbers for a while, and I had to go back and actually see if he wasn't missing, you know, if that could even be true, and I, and I verified it. That's pretty astounding when you think of all the negative news and environment we've had. That right. Tax revenue has gone up 50% somewhere over the past five years on a 12-month basis. Right, but the uh, it hasn't gone up because of uh, higher tax rates. It's because, it's because of uh, something happened, and unfortunately, no one really understands what happens uh, during the uh, uh, like after the first three or four months of the COVID crisis. Suddenly. Uh, the stock market took off, uh, uh, tax revenues increased, right. all a host of things that no one expected. So even the state of Illinois, which is obviously uh, always thought of as uh, kind of the, the basket case in terms of, of uh, state budget issues, has done really well in the last two or three years. And it's not because of any uh, big increase in tax rates here. It's because of the economy. And, again, it's a, a kind of strange unknown about why, why we had this uh, – kind of effervescence of activity during the uh, one of the worst crises we've had in, in decades. But, uh, again, the same thing happened with the stock market, uh, tax revenues, all kinds of things. Part of that is, is capital gains. Part of it is uh, all kinds of, uh, of uh, redistribution programs, stimulus programs that the government uh, put in place. Now, uh, I would bet that the next five years is going to be the same as the last five years. So, again, uh, it's probably not a time sure. to cut taxes, but whether we actually need to raise taxes is a – Another issue we do over over we, we talk about this very often in, in terms of the long run. In the long run, we're talking about uh, a couple decades. We have to either figure out a way to stop the 
uh, lower the rate of growth of spending or figure out a way to increase the rate of growth of, of revenues. So in the longer term, I think we have to think about some hard choices, and the hard choices are pretty simple. Um, uh, figure out a way to generate more money or figure out a way not to spend as much money. Yeah. I want to switch here a little bit. Ryan, you wrote a copy, uh, recent column in the News Gazette of, about, you know, in the title was, What is the 529 College Savings Plan? <clears throat> the reason I bring it up today is because it seems like over the past, I don't know, six or 12 months, we have more and more clients wanting, asking us how to fund. In other words, hey, I have more money than I need. What's the best way to get money? And, of course, one option, of course, is if there are grandchildren involved or other relatives or people you care deeply about and you want to impact their life and make sure that your grandchildren that get grandchildren have the same educational opportunities that your children did. 529 seems to be one that really brings a smile to grandma's face when you start talking about it. And uh, and grandpa, uh, I'm, I, mean, I don't want to be it's both, but I particularly noticed that. I'd like you guys to talk a little bit I mean, you guys have children that are probably college-bound here and super sick, so maybe in 12 years or so. Why don't you guys talk a little bit amongst yourselves about 529 plans, what they are. I know we've covered them some, but maybe a little more today and kind of what your thoughts are and then even down to some of the specifics of how do you choose the investment portfolio within those 529 plans. Sure. Can you guys do that? Yeah, I think it's it's good timing with kids going back to school. Maybe it's something that um, our listeners have heard of before, whether for their own kids or maybe their grandkids, and thought, well, you know, that's an idea. They put it on the back burner, and then all of a sudden, you know, it kind of slips away. So maybe it is a good time. Um, a 529 plan is really just an investing account that gives investors the ability to more efficiently save for college or trade schools, uh, which is often something folks probably don't know about is even if you're not college bound and maybe you have a child who might be interested in going to trade school, these funds can be used to pay or offset the cost of tuition at a trade school. Um, and I think for, for most people, that might be where the, the big knowledge ends um, is knowing that there is an option for saving that's more efficient than using your 401k, your IRA funds, or just cash on hand, or maybe trying to pay it out of cash flow, which is in, increasingly harder to do. Um, so the real value of, of having a 529 plan is planning ahead and having the ability to kind of give your uh, child the greatest start you can give them by having maybe almost two decades worth of compound growth in an investment vehicle, this 529 plan, that's going to grow tax-free and then provided, of course, that uh, the child uses the funds for college or for a trade school, uh, all the distributions come out tax-free. So it's growing for maybe two decades with no growth or with no tax on the growth. It's coming out of the account tax-free. Um, so it's a real, you know, real big boost for most families to be able to help fund what would otherwise be an, maybe an insurmountable cost of, of funding college on a year-by-year basis. And for the Illinois, you know, Illinois residents who contribute to the Illinois 529 plan, you get a state income tax deduction up front. So for a married couple, it'd be up to $20,000 um, that you could deduct on your state income tax return. So yep. if you look at the Illinois state tax rate, that'll lower your taxes about $1,000 if you put $20,000 into a 529 plan. Yep. And then for single people, it's 10000 I believe. Correct. Yeah. So it also has that nice state level. And again, that's at the state only. You don't get an, uh, an advantage at the federal level, but at the state. And that's only, of course, if you contribute to the Illinois 529 plan. And every state's got their own plan. And I think one uh, great misconception, too, is that you, if you contribute to an Illinois 529 plan, your, your child, in some people's minds, must go to a school in the, in the state of Illinois, which is not the case. Um, it's merely just a, a, an investment account that is essentially managed through the state, but it's an outside entity. So it has zero ties to the state's finances, which is often a comment I get. It's like, oh, I don't trust that Illinois 529 plan. Look what they've done for our finances. And I laugh, of course. Yeah, well, there's the <clears throat> confusion sometimes with the uh, the prepaid tuition plan. The prepaid tuition plan uh, does uh, have some serious problems. Yeah, and, and what Dr. Gertz is talking about, there's a, there's a couple of different 
um, 529 plans available to you. The one that is most common is just, you know, like a savings vehicle. There's another option where uh, you can buy prepaid tuition credits. So you essentially are getting the cost of tuition uh, more or less paid for in frozen terms today, regardless of what tuition might be in the future. But that has become quite problematic, Dr. Gertz, hasn't it? Yeah, they 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 haven't kept uh, up. uh, It's like a pension fund in a sense. They made two mistakes. One is they overestimated the uh, rate of return, and they underestimated the increase in the uh, cost of education. Mm -hmm. And um, college education has gone up a whole lot uh, for a variety of reasons, but one reason is that states have cut back on funding, and universities have stepped in to try to make up that that uh, lack by raising tuitions much higher than the rate of inflation. So mm-hmm. there, there are estimates like when you uh, fund a pension fund, you, you base it on you know future wages and, and inflation and a whole bunch of things plus the rate of return. And again, those are fairly straightforward in a pension fund. They're more difficult in a, uh, a prepaid tuition plan. So again, uh, Illinois still has one, but I think it's, it can be thought of as kind of moribund at this point. Yeah. And a question for you as someone who worked in the university system, do you think that high inflation rate, do you expect that to continue kind of at the rate it has? Because I think it's been a little over double the actual inflation rate. Uh, Probably not. Uh, uh, There's a problem now of of, uh, enrollment. A lot of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign has no problem, but a lot of smaller state schools have serious problems and a lot of uh, small private colleges, not the elite, but smaller private colleges have huge problems. So there's kind of a, a discounting going on now. So I don't think they can, uh, th- those kind of rates are going to increase. There's also the, the question that uh, probably most people know, there's the, what, uh, using an analogy to an automobile, it's the sticker price versus how much you actually pay. So a lot of universities have still a relatively high sticker price, but almost no one pays that. So there are all kinds of scholarships, need-based, uh, uh, achievement-based, all kinds of things. So it, uh, in most colleges, uh, a minority of people actually pay the full rate. I was just looking, perfect example, at um, basically the we have a software that will show here's the cost of college, you plug in your financial information, <clears throat> and here's your the amount you would actually have to pay. And for this particular client's daughter, one of the colleges that we were looking at was Northwestern, mm-hmm. which happens to be one of the most expensive colleges in the country if you look at just the sticker price. But if we look at what their actual mm-hmm. amount that they would be required to actually pay the university, it was actually right in line with a lot of other universities yeah. around here, like University of Iowa, and there were a couple others. I think it was yeah. Missouri. It may depend on the client, too. If you, if you have a, a client who's doing extremely well, uh, they probably exactly are happy to pay the sticker price, or some people have wanted to pay even more than a sticker price to get in the back door. <laughs> right. So it's it's going to be a case-by-case basis, but it, it is kind of interesting. And this, I mean, this client had a pretty high household income, yeah. so I was surprised how much of uh, financial aid they would have right. received. But it's because, you know, it's, it's such an expensive university, right. and they calculate that expected family contribution, and then you get, you get some financial aid. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, really – yeah, the cost is comparable <clears throat> once you adjust for that. Yeah, also, that's an area I, I I know about, but no, don't know the details about. I think there's differences in some assets count more than others, and uh, so they have to. It's not just how much money you have or how, how, what your assets are; it's how they're held, how they're titled. A whole bunch of things make a difference. Certainly, yeah. and, and that's a great point to bring up too. So, for um, probably the common use, a lot of parents are the contributors to a 529 plan, but there are plenty of grandparents, and I know, Dr. Gertz, you've talked about this yeah. in the past, contributing on behalf of grandkids. Um, and there is a potential drawback for grandparents uh, having a lot of assets tied up in a grandparent-owned 529 plan rather than a parent-owned 529 plan. There's, there's simple ways to get around it. You can you can retitle the 529 and let's say Dr. Gertz in one of your children's names at a, a point in the future so that that expected family contribution uh, doesn't go significantly higher where you have to pay more for that tuition um, because of the way it's titled as a grandparent owned or a child owned. Another mm-hmm. uh, thing I was, I'm aware of is that as your child is, let's say, attending a four univers- four-year university, they actually complete their degree in four years and they don't stretch it out to a fifth year or longer. Um, you can uh, change the assets over from a grandparent-owned or from an otherwise non-parent-owned account 
uh, at their sophomore year because the look-back period for this, this expected family contribution uh, will have essentially elapsed, and you're not going to pay a higher rate because you had these assets in, in a different uh, family member's name. So there are simple planning mechanisms around it. So it's not to say grandparent-owned 529 plans are <clears> bad. <throat> it just means that there's some things to consider when you're doing that because it can have a, a material impact on how much that particular child would have to pay. Right. It's and, been a while since I looked at this, but isn't it that grandparent-owned 529 plans don't get counted as an asset, but if you withdraw from them, it counts as income for that? And Correct. So, so typically, I think what the, the optimal, if you have both a grandparent-owned and a parent-owned, would be to withdraw from the parent-owned early on and then withdraw from the grandparent-owned one. Yeah the last couple of years. I need to refresh my memory on that, honestly. Yeah, you might talk also about the investment options because the investment options are often like a life cycle investment, yep. except in a 15-year term instead of a longer one. Yeah, and I, so I'm most familiar, but most 529 plans are similar in this regard that they'll have, um, they'll usually have options available for you. So one would be you can essentially build your own investment allocation with a list of funds that they give you to choose from. Um, but what's more common and what people often choose is what Dr. Gers called like a life cycle fund, or it's just a fund that basically as your child gets closer and closer to their entry date of college, the stock allocation will decrease and the bond allocation will increase, just meaning we're putting more and more of our money in stable stuff as we get closer to the time we're actually going to be withdrawing the money because we don't want to get hit with a giant market decline and see our portfolio balance drop you know, 40, 50% right before we need to withdraw the money. Um, Illinois actually has an interesting setup with their, I forget, I forget what their, I think they call them age-based mm -hmm. allocations, where they even let you customize further than that. They have three different options for the age-based, which is conservative, moderate, and then aggressive. And the only difference between the three, it's the same funds, is how much of the money is in stocks at certain ages. And so, like, the conservative one is going to have lower stock allocations at each age along the way than the moderate or the aggressive. Yep. I think most uh, states also have passive options. Uh, uh, every time they do it, uh, redo the, uh, the uh, options, they usually have lower rates. So the, the uh, expense rate is very low now if you choose the right one. If you don't choose the right one, it might not be. Yeah, like the Illinois 529 plan, people are always surprised to hear that it's consistently rated one of the top plans in the entire country. And part of that is the costs are extremely low. So I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's an administrative cost, which is very low. It might be like 0.06% or something like that. And then if you use the index funds within there, so they like with the age-based funds, they have the age-based index fund option, which uses Vanguard index funds. And I think if you look like all in, all the expenses combined, it might be like 0.1 to 0.14% depending on the exact allocation, if I'm remembering that correctly. Right. But the, rather than focus on the specific numbers, it's just it's extremely, extremely low. Right. And I think to give people a frame of reference, 0.14%, I mean, if, if you look at most people's brokerage accounts, if you have an investment account, again, not 529, it's not out of the realm to say that somebody might have an investment account at 0.75 or 1% of expense ratios, and we're talking about 0.14, so a, quite a small fraction. So just for some you know, benchmarking. But yeah, I think that's one of the, the big surprises for most people. Like, oh, wow, Illinois has an investment vehicle option for us for college that's highly rated and isn't tied to the state's finances, or they can't claw it back for any reason. It's, it's uniquely owned by the owner of the account. Yeah. One, one thing that you can do in Illinois, which I think is probably a good idea, uh, the law now allows uh, people to use it for college uh, tuition, things of that sort, but the state of Illinois, does not, that, that plan doesn't allow it. So if you're, it, it does make a lot of sense to fund your preschool with a 529, but if, if you wanted to, you couldn't do it with Illinois. Yeah, I, I always felt like, ah, it's not that big of a difference anyways, because the whole point of this is you get that compound growth yeah. tax-free, and yeah, if you were using it for at least the early years of education, yeah. I guess that would still be several years of growth. So it could yeah. have some tax benefit, but it's probably not. It's not the end of the world that you can't you can't. And use if you it. only had and if you only had several years, you're not going to put it in the stock market anyway. So really, the, your growth expectations would be quite yeah. low. Yeah. Um, I think no. what they take the away I, is is the planning opportunity to offset your income because if you did make a contribution, for example, every year, and you had a child in private school. K through 12, 
you make contributions into a 529 plan each year, you could lower your taxable income a little bit each year at the sure. state level. Yeah. They disallowed that, you know, if you're pulling those funds out for, for funding for, you know, grade school expenses. You know, well, you would, you would still get the deduction when you put the money in. I'm thinking if you're funding more, like, than you need for college. Let's say I want to put in $8,000 oh. a year, but I know I also need to fund another five or six or 10000 for, yep. um, you know, my private private school tuition. So I put in both. Then, yeah, you know, if I'm not already doing that full twenty thousand dollar advantage, so yeah. and the other thing is that, uh, with the life cycle, uh, that sort of assumes that this is the only source of college funding. So if you're a grandparent who have has the capability of stepping in and and making up deficiencies out of other assets, you might think of a more risky kind of strategy. And if it doesn't work out quite as well as you hope, that there are ways of dealing with it. Yeah, yeah exactly. So the, the, that's where it's a judgment call. So even with within those like life cycle options, the, which, the one that you choose, it's probably going to be mostly a personality thing because obviously the more aggressive you go, the higher your expected return. But you also, I mean, especially when you're dealing with shorter time horizons, <laughs> you could get unlucky. Yeah, but, I, but if, 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 if Bill Gates were – Funding a 529, I don't think he would worry about uh, right. uh, risk. In that case. Exactly. And frankly, that's that's what I'm doing. Like yeah. my my son's 529 plan now, he's only a year old, but yeah. I didn't even use the age-based one because I didn't want any bonds in it. Yeah. I'm just going to be 100% stock in it right. until probably he's 13, 14, and then right. I'll start shifting into bonds. And even that's probably – most people would consider it maybe slightly rec- reckless, but it's the same reason that you said. I'm like, well, if I get unlucky, I'm comfortable with that risk. Yeah. You have to kind of accept yeah. that the, I'm taking a risk, and if I'm unlucky, then okay, that's just the risk that I took, and I have to accept that. Yeah. But it won't it won't change my world, I suppose. Right, and I think most no, people couldn't you know, couldn't live in that world. You know? It would stress them out. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas you you would be able to handle it. You know the risk going into it. You know, you've priced it already for yourself. Yep. I think, don't you guys think there's a little confusion, though, because uh, there's, what, the bright directions. Is that the one that's offered to, right start, uh, like, investment firms? Oh, Yeah, uh, ex- exactly. So, like, the one yeah. that you just get on your own without going through a financial professional is called Bright Start 529 plan. Right. And yeah. then, yeah, I believe. Well, I they're, they're all called Bright Start with the, uh, the uh, where you just pay into it and don't have a guaranteed tuition. And then, but then there's like well, they call it the bright directions oh, if you see. Right. So like I just had a client that you know they had gotten it through like someone at their bank in the wealth management division, and it was a bright directions five twenty nine oh. plan. I, I guess I don't know why they name it differently, but well, I think okay. it comes from you know you need someone to help direct it, you know, direct yeah. you advice on what to do. But frankly, I, I would discourage that in most cases. I, don't you guys think that? If even somebody has zero knowledge about investing, but they want to put money away in a 529 plan, if they just defaulted to the age-based, index fund-based portfolio, uh, that they're going to that that I don't see a reason to pay the five percent. Typically, uh, what I've seen at least, maybe it's changed, but you end up paying a five percent commission on every dollar if you do it in the right direction. Maybe that's changed. That might be a scale number, but I think it probably is still the same. And I, you know, it's not that people look. I'm an advisor. People pay us money for advice. I'm not trying to discourage. I'm not trying to suggest that people don't need advisors. I'm just saying in this case, I think I would be comfortable with any halfway competent person just using the Bright Start index-based, age-based fund and just kind of put it on automatic pilot. One last thing to mention on the 529 plans is just a common concern I hear is, well, what if I don't actually need the money for college expenses? And there are some exceptions to the penalty. So normally if you if you just, your child just for whatever reason didn't go to college just because they chose not to and you withdraw the money, there's going to be, you're going to owe taxes on the growth that you've earned during that time frame, ordinary income tax, plus a 10% penalty. But there are exceptions. So if the reason is, well, they got a full scholarship, we don't need the money. That's an exception. And there are some other ones, I think, like disability and things. Mm-hmm. So there are some exceptions. But then the other thing that I think gives people peace of mind is you can change the beneficiary as well. So, I mean, one thing theoretically you could do is, like, say you had a surplus. Like, oh, I just – I'm the fortunate person. I had a surplus in my 529 plan. I didn't need all that money. You have the choice. I mean, you could literally just leave it there. 
And then if you think your children or one of your children is going to have grandchildren, you could just let it grow until you have a grandchild, change the beneficiary to the grandchild. Or it could be a niece or a nephew or whatever it is if you're really, really bothered by the thought of paying a 10% penalty and some taxes. So there are, there are some options. And some people purposely overfund them with the intention of, I'm going to turn this into a multi-generational college savings vehicle. I think you can use it later. It doesn't expire when you're 21 or 22. So no. if someone goes back to school later or whatever. They, exactly. Yeah. And, it, and it could be used to fund higher education beyond college. So grad school you could be using you know, investments for as well. So it can go beyond just the traditional four years of college. But that's well, a good point it's to add. A, it's a useful tool. We talk a lot about, uh, about it a lot with clients. And like I said, just, it seems like more recently, for some reason, more and more, I guess it's because our clients are getting older as time goes by, as we all are. And, you know, when when your advisor tells you, look, you're never going to spend all this money, what would you like to do? It's certainly one opportunity. So I thought it was worthwhile. But Dave, you, you kind of gave a good segue. You talked about personality, you know, so many decisions about finance. You know, while we all like to think they're mathematical, but a lot of times it really depends on your circumstances. And Ben Carlson, uh, the great writer, wrote an article that said, Mathematics, you only have one button to press to receive a potentially nice monetary reward. Which do you press? The red button is instant $1 million. So if you press that button, they're going to hand you a million. And then the green button is 50% chance of $50 million. Um, you know, People would say, well, why would you take a million against the expected payout of $25 million? theoretically, from a mathematical standpoint? is a 50-50 chance of $50 million is a $25 million expected return. And he goes on to say, if you understand the probabilities, you hit the green button. Easy, right? Not so fast. <laughs> and I thought it was kind of interesting the way he put it. He said, let's say you have a million in your proverbial pocket. Would you spend that money for 50% shot at $50 million with an equal probability of losing it all? And anyway, goes on to say the mathematical answer is you hit green every time. The psychological answer is you hit red every time, which is, now I'm going to take the million dollars guaranteed. The circumstantial answer is, and I think that's kind of clever. I haven't really thought of it. Circumstantial uh, answer is, well, it depends. Like so many things, finance guys. Uh, clients ask us questions, and just about every one of them should start with, well, it depends. And, and you know, because circumstances, they just tend to trump math when making big money decisions. That's what I've noticed. And, and the, the other thing is, I think, you know, everybody's view of risk is really a personal view of risk. You know, not, it might be the same math, the same odds, but people are going to look at it differently. And And you guys have probably noticed that. Sometimes the happiness, comfort, satisfaction, or safety trumps the dollar sign. One of the things I think about when, that, when I read that article is a, a newly minted retiree comes in and they owe a couple hundred thousand on their mortgage and it's, well, do I pay it off or do I not? And we, you know, our answer is, I think, pretty consistent. You guys want to talk about what that answer is? And, and, and I think it's a good example of circumstances and psychology um, weighs in, it should weigh in, and it always does weigh in on that decision. Yep. I think for most people, they, they come into retirement thinking, I'd, I'd, I like the idea of not having a mortgage in retirement, whether they choose to keep it or pay it off is, is later. But I think they think, how nice would it be to be free of that monthly payment? I have no debt headed into retirement, and that's kind of their, their you know, preconceived thought that, all right, retirement equals no debt. And for a lot of folks, you know, that allows them to sleep better at night. They know they don't have to have as much show up. They don't have this, you know, nagging liability in their mortgage hanging over their heads. Would you say that is kind of similar from what you see, Dave? For sure. And, you know, mathematically, at least it used to be, you know, if people had their, got their mortgage, you know, a number of years ago, or maybe they refinanced in 2020 and they had a 3% interest rate, the mathematical answer was, well, you should keep your mortgage, pay it down, basically just follow the normal amortization schedule, pay it down as slowly as you can, and keep that money invested because the expected return on your investment portfolio is higher than 3% or so. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, obviously, that's going to maybe change a little bit now that mortgage rates have essentially doubled. Um, but despite the mathematical answer, oftentimes we will advise clients, just go ahead and pay off your mortgage. It's like, well, why would we do that? Well, we can tell that the mortgage really, really bugs them. And sometimes you have the same conversation <laughs> two or three times and you're like, okay, I know mathematically it's not the optimal thing, but this is really causing you stress. The point of life, you know, the point of money is to help you lead the happiest life possible, right. not just to accumulate more and more and more, more money for its own sake. Right. There's also a tax issue. If you're not itemizing, you can pay it off and, and you get the return, the implicit return that you're saving, you don't pay tax on it. Well, if you're paying the mortgage and don't, don't uh, itemize and you're, you're not. So there's lots mm -hmm. of – the other thing that uh, – People might want to think about too if they're paying it off is to have a, a home equity loan on file. Uh, you, you can have one for like fifty dollars a year. Gives you access to uh, a good bit of your equity, and it's there if you need it. If you don't need it, uh, it's great. Right. So, like you said, Dad, this is a perfect example of where sometimes the psychology will trump the mathematical answer. Mm -hmm. and that's why I like you know this article especially because it doesn't say. You know, from this is a financial writer writing for generally folks who are interested in finance and are interested and aware of this kind of thing. The answer depends because every person's position in life is different and unique. But, Do Dr. Gertz, for example, you're you know you've spent the most you know the bulk of your yeah. years working. You're not working yeah. like you used to be. For example, if you hit the red button, got a million dollars, maybe that changes right. your life. Maybe it doesn't. Right. And you might say, gosh, I'd hit that green button, have a 50% chance sure. of getting $50 million every single time. Someone who's just starting out or has an incredible amount of um, debt racked up, they could say, wow, I could be free and clear of this debt. So be it that I have a 50% chance of $50 million. I don't care. I know I'm going <laughs> to be mentally cleared of this you know, debt or whatever you know, things you need or want in life. Right. And that trumps the but mathematics. Also, uh, uh, some some people can uh, make very bad decisions going against the math too. And so it, it, it's not clear cut at all. The, uh, the state retirement systems have a buyout where you can uh, you can basically cash out your pension, mm -hmm. but the the, the, the amount is like uh, fifty or sixty percent of the present value of your your benefits. So you get a lot of money right now, but you give up your future. So it, it's not a Yep. It, it might be easy. You need a new car or you want to take a vacation. But, again, you have to look at the long term. Yeah, and I think they you know, they know that a lot of people aren't going to make necessarily the best you know, financially yeah. optimal decision in that. And they're trying to offload, of course, these expensive yeah. pension plans. And so a lot of folks will, might say, oh, I'll take that easy money and do exactly what you say. I'll get that car I always wanted or do whatever. Um, but they're not equipped or maybe given the right uh, counseling when they make this decision to say, hey, if you do this, here's the rules, here's the implications, here's what you're giving up, and they're not given maybe that you know other side of the decision that they're just rushing for that quick. Yeah, there's something, uh, this is some time ago, but West Virginia decided in their public pension systems that instead of making everyone annuitize the full amount, they would annuitize a portion of it and take the rest in cash, and they developed what they call the red truck syndrome. <laughs> People were taking a, a huge amount out to buy the big red truck, and then, yep. then a few years later they said, how come you let me do that? Yeah. it's Well, it's, one thing's for sure. I, I can just tell, you know, I, I'll be 63 here in November, and so compared to almost 40 years ago when I was very young, uh, I would always follow the math, but now as each day goes by, well, I have a mortgage on my home, but it's 2.75% for 30 years. And when I took out the mortgage or refinanced several years ago, I thought, you know, I'd take out a hundred year mortgage if they give it to me at 2.75, kind of in a smug way. And, uh, but I tell you what, as each day goes by, I sit here and almost, you know, I toil a little bit about, but it would sure feel nice to not just to know my house is paid off. I could pay it off tomorrow if I wanted to. So for right now, I'm letting the math win. But a year from now, I'm not so sure uh, that uh, and it's even bit more difficult now, the decision, when you have inflation running at 8 or 9% and you're paying 2.75% fixed on your mortgage, it makes it, the math should trumpet all the more. Uh, so, it's, you know, you're paying back the depreciated dollars. So it's it's a tough decision, but I'm finding as, as I get older, 
um, the psycho- psychological component is starting to, it's probably at a 50-50 now compared to several years ago. Even in that short time frame, I wouldn't have even thought of it for a moment from a financial engineering side. So like a lot of financial decisions, you know, you have to weigh both. But I think, Dave, I think you said it great. The whole point of money, and especially we we deal with retirees, substantially all of our clients are retired. And I think when I look back on 39 years, it's you see some people that, you know, they have an enough zone that's realistic. They're not asking more from their money than their money can actually do for them. And they seem to be a lot happier. And, and again, I think the whole point of people sacrificing, you know, spending today versus saving it for future incomes down the road, um, you, you know, it's it's just really important to get a grasp on that. And the whole point is to be happy. And I think with the right planning and having somebody to help you balance out that some of these decisions between the psychological component, the circumstances component, and the mathematical component is probably one of the best reasons to hire a financial advisor. I'm not doing commercial for us. I'm just saying, I think if you ask virtually every one of our clients why they continue to pay us, for example, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't talk about returns or the mathematical component of it. It would be, I think the answer would be, if you lined up a hundred of them, probably ninety nine out of a hundred. I'm just guessing would say, because I don't worry about it anymore, and that and that makes me happy. I know I have somebody that's actually watching my plan and will tell me when I need to make adjustments, so I don't have to think about those things. I can go think about doing all the things that I wanted to do in the first place. That's why I saved all this money and invested over these years. So, uh, so I think that nails it, and uh, I think again. But it just shows you how important the psychological decisions are, guys. Now, I don't have my time second down at the time, but it's getting <laughs> close to 10.59, I'm sure. 10.58 uh, and 44 anybody? seconds. <laughs> okay, so, Brad, I appreciate you having you back live on the show. I wish I was there. Yeah, we'll see you next time. <laughs> and, yep, and I'll be back in the studio. Certainly, I'm coming back tomorrow, probably. And... Uh, I appreciate everybody listening to Paul Rudy's Eye on the Money. Thank you, Ryan Repko and David Rudy from Rudy Wealth Management. And thank you, Dr. Fred Gert. Two weeks from now, we'll be back with more of Paul Rudy's Eye on the Money. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station. 